Oh, Father, we are so thankful for the chance to come together and study more about the life of your son, Jesus. And we pray that as we jump into what are some very fun and meaty events tonight, that you would help us unpack those and understand those, mostly so we can learn to walk more closely with your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. We're studying the life of Christ. The life of, stay up. The life of Christ takes place in what, in what land? The land of Israel. And the land of Israel is formed by how many waters? Four. There are the sea of what? Say it. Galilee empties into the Jordan River, empties into the what? Dead Sea. Over there is the Mediterranean. Jesus was born in what city? Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is down here. And we're going to say Bethlehem birth with our sign for the birth. Go Bethlehem birth. And then when Jesus was two, he was taken by his parents down where? Egypt is outside the exit on the exit door over there. That's the flight. Very good, Kara, into Egypt. And then Jesus uh, comes home with mom and dad once Herod the Great dies to the city of Nazareth. Thank you for not moving. And Nazareth, Jesus probably is a carpenter. Here he is sawing a log. He stays in Nazareth until he's about 30. He heads down into the Jordan River where he is what? Baptized by John. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan. He goes out into Perea for the first of three firsts. Perea first followers, takes them to a wedding in Cana. He does the first miracle. And then he goes down to Jerusalem for the first cleansing of the temple, then tells Nicodemus about the second birth. He heads up through Sychar, and he meets the woman at the well, and her name is Sandra. Very good. Very good. You remembered. You don't remember anything else, but you remember the name of the woman at the well. And then he comes all the way north to Nazareth. You remember last week we had a great rejection. They tried to throw him over the cliff, so that's our sign. They're throwing him over the Mount of Precipitation. So now he has to find a new hometown, and he moves here to what's the name of this town? Capernaum. It caps off the Sea of Galilee, okay? Capernaum is right up here. We're going to see that's a very important city for the ministry of Jesus. And he stays in Capernaum, and last week we saw him begin to do a bunch of miracles that demonstrate his authority. Say authority, and the result is great conflict with the religious leaders that's going to come to a head this week and next okay see if we can do that whole thing again bethlehem birth egypt flight nazareth carpenter jordan river baptized by john wilderness tempted by satan perea first followers cana first miracle jerusalem first cleansing second birth up through sychar woman at the well nazareth rejection capernaum authority conflict. Good. Have a seat. You're doing great. Nice job. You will know this by heart by the end of the time. If you haven't memorized it by now, just please don't worry about that. We'll actually give you a handout with the whole thing in. We're only about a third of the way done. So after tonight, you'll have a couple of more miracles under the authority category. Now we finished last week in paragraph 49 in the Harmony of the Gospels in the Luke account, chapter 5 and verse Uh, near the end of the chapter, Jesus told two parables. He told the parable of the wineskin and he told the parable of the patch. The parable of the patch said no man puts new patches on old material because when the patch shrinks, it will tear up the old. No man puts new wine into an old wineskin because it will burst the old. What Jesus is saying, I see that yawn, what Jesus is saying is that I'm not coming to patch up the old system. I'm not coming to put my new stuff into the old system of Pharisaic Judaism. The Pharisees ran the show in the first century. And Jesus is not about fixing that. He's about operating in a whole new way. So when we come to the next paragraph, paragraph 49, 
we're going to see in the first session tonight three Sabbath controversies. I'm not sure they were uh, sequential, but they were chronological. And this is a big deal because Jesus is going to disagree with the Jews' interpretation of the Sabbath. Okay, We're going to talk a lot about the Sabbath tonight. By the time of Jesus, the Jewish leadership had personified the Sabbath. The Sabbath is what set Israel apart. The Hebrew word Sabbath or Shabbat is simply the number seven. It's the last day of the week, and it commemorates God's resting after the creation is over in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And God had taken Israel from being slaves in Egypt, and as he brought them out of the land, he gave them and them alone the Sabbath command. No other nation has a Sabbath. And the purpose of the Sabbath originally was to show Israel that they didn't have to work seven days a week. Now, the Sabbath is not repeated in the New Testament. Of the Ten Commandments, the other nine are. We're not under obligation to keep the Sabbath commandment today. Now, you can keep it if you like. Romans 14 says you may have a Sabbath if you choose. I don't think it's a bad idea to take one day and rest and worship. But we're not under the obligation that Israel was because we are not the same as Israel. And so Jesus, John chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, After this there was a Jewish feast, and Jesus went where? Up to Jerusalem. And again, anytime you go to Jerusalem, you have to go up, because Jerusalem is the highest place in the country. The place of the temple is Mount Moriah. It's the highest point, even to this day, in the whole land of Israel. It's at about 2,800 feet above sea level. It snows in Jerusalem. I've actually been there in the snow. It's a very amazing and and interesting thing. About every 10 years they get snow. Now this is a Jewish feast and we know from the context it's going to be the feast of Passover. So we've skipped forward an entire year from the time Jesus told Nicodemus you must be born again. There are four Passovers during the ministry of Jesus. This is Passover number two. We'll get to the other two, not tonight, but as we as we press on. We know at the last fourth Passover, Jesus was put to death as our Passover sacrifice. So he's one year plus into the ministry, and we see in verse 2, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five covered walkways. The word Bethesda means house of mercy. A great number of sick, blind, lamed, and paralyzed people were laying in those walkways. Now, fortunately, we've excavated the pool of Bethesda. I'd love to take you to Israel sometime, and in Jerusalem, uh, you'll see the excavations of this pool. Near that fortress that we're looking at is near the temple, which is in the background. It's just near the temple area, and, uh, and interestingly enough, the, cr- the crippled and the lame and the blind, the unclean, used to hang out there. Now, in your Bibles, in the New English Translation, it skips this next verse and a half. In the older translation, the King James has this, the New American Standard Standard adds it in the parentheses, and here's what it says. It says, In these lay a multitude of those who are sick, blind, lamed, and withered, parentheses, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he or she was afflicted. Now, that's not part of our scripture, but I think that that was the tradition, and it was probably added to manuscripts later on. And it certainly is referred to later in our passage. And again, people would come to the Passover because they were required to, but God would show up, send an angel, the waters would be stirred up, and then somebody in Hebrew would yell, 
everybody into the pool, and boom, you'd rush to get to the water. Notice there are four porches up top at the Pool of Bethesda, and I think in the fifth porch is probably that big covered portico at the bottom. Uh, there's the pool, but it was kind of a convoluted mess. You wouldn't want to travel in these circles because if you were there for the Passover and you came in contact with an unclean person, you yourself would be unclean. And so Jesus walks right into the middle of that, and it says in verse 5, Jesus, now there was a man there who had been disabled how long? 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and when he realized that the man had been disabled a long time, he said to him, do you want to become well? Which to me is a pretty funny question. You know, the guy's lame, he's at the Passover, he's hoping for the angel to stir, and Jesus goes up to him and says, do you wish to become well? You know, if, I, if I'm the lame man, I'm kind of going to slap him right here. No, I'm just here because I like the show. But the man understands the circumstances that he finds himself in. In verse 7 it says, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am trying to get into the water, someone else goes down there before me. So there's our reference to the stirring of the waters, and that is part of the most reliable New Testament manuscripts. Jesus is dealing with this man, and he understands, does the, does the layman, that the solution to his problem is in a person. That's a very helpful thing to get. You know, it's not about the sickness. The, the, the problem is, I need a person. I need a person. And we're going to come back to that later in our session. Jesus said to him, verse 8, Stand up, pick up your mat, and do what? Walk. Immediately, underline that, the man was healed, and he picked up his mat and started walking. Now that day was the Sabbath. Now Jesus knows everything, and he probably knew that this man had been there 38 years. You know, He could have waited until the next day to heal him. But he's trying to bring the Pharisees to a point of decision about his person and his works. And this Sabbath thing becomes the rub. So the Jewish leaders, verse 10, said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and you are not permitted to carry your mat. But he answered them, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your mat and walk? But the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped out since there was a crowd in that place. Let me tell you again, by the time of Christ, what the Jews had done to the Sabbath. There is in the Old Testament one, count them, one Sabbath commandment. Of the Ten Commandments, it's commandment number four. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is holy unto the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. The purpose of the Sabbath was to show the Jewish people that they could take one day a week and not have to work and rely on the Lord. And they had a Sabbath day, and then they had a Sabbath year. Every seven years they were to take a year off, and every seven Sabbath years they were to take another year off. That was called the year of Jubilee. And it was the only nation on the planet that gets this. Other nations have circumcisions, and other nations have spiritual purpose, and other nations have uh, outward signs of their relationship with God or their God, but the Jews and the Jews alone get the Sabbath. So now we come to have a discussion, as do the rabbis. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath? Well, they had decided that on the Sabbath you would not carry a burden. 
and here's this man carrying his mat. Now that was what they would call a parent work. They had 39 parent works. You may not carry a burden on the Sabbath. So that ladies on the Sabbath, you would not be allowed to look in a mirror. Because if you happen to see a gray hair, you might be tempted to pull it out, and that was carrying a burden or laboring on the Sabbath. True story. On the Sabbath, later on, you were not allowed to wear false teeth because that's me carrying a burden on the Sabbath. Okay, on the Sabbath, you were not allowed, if your house is burning, to go in and carry everything out. But what you could do, according to the rabbis, is go in and put on three suits of clothes and come out and strip down and then run back in and do that again and again until either you or the house burned. Now, we think this is pretty stupid stuff. By the time of Jesus, those 39 parent works had devolved into 1,500 child works. We're going to see them in these three events that we're studying in this session. So instead of getting up and saying, oh, it's Sabbath, Shabbat, a day of rest and worship, it's Sabbath. i got 1,500 things to worry about. On the Sabbath, you were only allowed to travel about a fifth of a mile. But if you had to travel two-fifths of a mile or a mile, you could take a bit of food and hide it under a rock at the fifth of a mile marker, and then you could stop there on your journey and eat. And now that you've journeyed, now that you've eaten there, it's your new home. So you get another fifth of a mile. So the Jews had all these ways of getting around the Sabbath. And Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath. And they said, who is this guy? And the guy didn't know. Jesus had slipped off. And then verse 14, I love this. I just noticed this this week. I've taught this many times, but I love it. And after this, Jesus found him where? At the temple. Now, how long has this guy been lame? 38 years. How long has it been since he's been allowed to go in the temple? 38 years. If you're lame, you can't go in the temple. And it's the one thing he wanted to do. And so he goes to the temple, and Jesus said to him, Look, you have become well. Don't sin anymore, lest anything worse happen to you. And then the man throws Jesus under the bus. That's the Hebrew paraphrase. The man went away and informed the Jewish leaders that Jesus was the one who made him well. Now verse 16. Now because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began persecuting him. So he told them, My father is working until now, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jewish leaders were trying even harder to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own what? Father, thus making himself equal with God. Now they've got him on two capital crimes. Breaking the Sabbath was a capital offense. In the Old Testament, if you broke the Sabbath, you could be stoned to death. Now Jesus says, wait a minute, my father's working on the Sabbath and so am I. In the Jewish mind, the son is always equal to the father in every way. And so he's committed blasphemy. And now they've got him on two capital counts over healing this man. Now when Jesus is accused of a capital offense, he always backs it up by defending himself. And so the rest of John 5 is his defense against this Sabbath violation. Again, they had all these regulations. On the Sabbath, you couldn't, you couldn't carry a handkerchief. You could pin it to your shoulder which is kind of like what my you know, kids used to do. But again, we think this is silly, but they worship the Sabbath. They, they treated the Sabbath as though it was and is a person. 
And so Jesus is going to defend himself against their, viola- against their accusation. Verse 19, he answered them, even though they didn't ask, by the way. I tell you the solemn truth, the Son can do nothing on his own initiative, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For in verse 21, the fa- just, for the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he does and will show him greater deeds than these, so that you will be amazed. And here's his first defense. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wishes. His first defense is, the Son has the power to give life. The Sabbath did not. All the Sabbath did was frustrate the Jews. Told them when they screwed up. And they're laying these burdens on the common people. But Jesus said, hey, there's life ahead. Verse 22, the Son has the power to judge. Furthermore, the Father does not judge anyone, but has assigned all judgment to the Son. Again, the Son is equal to the Father in every way. So that all the people who honor the Son, just as they honor the Father, the one who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then he says, I tell you the solemn truth. The one who hears my message and believes the one who has sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned but has crossed over from death to life. So again, John again is developing this motif of what does it take to be in heaven? You've got to believe. And when you believe, you're going all in with Christ. You're turning away from the Pharisee system and you're going to go with Jesus. And his second line of defense is, He has the power to judge. His third line of defense, verses 25 to 30, has the power of the resurrection. I tell you the solemn truth, the time is coming is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, thus he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has granted the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Again, Son of Man is an Old Testament title for the Messiah. We get it from the book of Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 9. And often you find this in the Luke account, but here John is using it as well. And then he says, verse 28, Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. The ones who have done what is good to the resurrection resulting in life and the ones who have done evil to the resurrection resulting in condemnation. And so the Son has the power to give life, he has the power to judge, he has the power of the resurrection And then in addition, Jesus in these last few verses of John 5 gives us five additional witnesses to the fact that he is the one who he's claimed to be. I can do nothing on my own initiative, just as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of one of the one who sent me. I testify about myself. My testimony, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know the testimony he testifies about me is true. Again, they're going to take him to court. Jesus knows that. And in, Jewish, in the Jewish court of law, if you just have one witness and it's just you, they don't have to abide by the testimony. So Jesus is going to give witnesses to his sonship. The first is John. Look at verse 33. You have sent to John. Now who's John? John the Baptist. You have sent to John. Remember the Sanhedrin sent to John during the first week of Jesus' ministry. Who are you? I am not the Christ, I am the voice. You sent to John and he has testified to the truth. I do not accept human testimony, but I say this so you may be saved. He was a lamp that was burning and shining and wanted you to rejoice greatly for a short time in his light. Remember in John 1 it says John was the one who testified to the fact that the light was here. 
And then verse 36, I have a testimony far greater than that from John. For the deeds that the Father has assigned me to complete, the deeds I am now doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus has cleansed the temple. Last week he healed the leper. Now he's healed the lame man. And these things he's doing are going to manifest and and validate his, his message. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the King of Israel. And his deeds testify to that. And then third, and the Father who sent me has himself testified uh, about me. You people have never heard his voice nor seen his form at any time. Now, when did the Father testify about Jesus? What did the Father say when Jesus was baptized by John? You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So he's got John the Baptist. He's got his works. He's got the testimony of the Father. All these will line up in court against the Pharisees. Nor do you have his word residing in you because you do not believe the one whom he sent. And then next, verse 39, you study the scriptures thoroughly because you think in them you possess eternal life. And it is these same scriptures that testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. The scriptures are full of references to the coming of the Son of God who would die for the sins of the people. I've got another series. If you want it sometime, I'm happy to get it to you. It's called uh, Jesus in the Old Testament. Sometimes I do it at Christmas time. It's called Christmas in the Old Testament. In every Old Testament book, there are prophecies, almost always more than one, sometimes 20 or 30, that talk about the coming of the Messiah. You know, in Genesis, we have the promise in chapter 3 of the son of the woman who would come and destroy the seed of the serpent. And there are many, many others in Genesis. In Genesis 22, you have the picture of Isaac, the son of Abraham and the promise who Abraham has to willingly give up and offer because in faith he knows God will raise him up again. That's a picture of Jesus. See, in the book of Genesis you have the story of Joseph who's a picture or a type of Christ who's rejected by his own people but ultimately brought to a preeminent position is what happens to Jesus. Exodus, Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole Passover lamb motif. If you read Exodus 12, it starts with, here's what you do when you offer a Passover sacrifice. You pick them out on Sunday, you investigate them until Thursday, and then you put them to death. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Leviticus, Jesus is the fulfillment of every single offering and feast. And if you really haven't ever read Leviticus 16, the whole Feast of Atonement is a picture of what's going to happen when Christ comes as the perfect sacrifice who is not a little animal that you have to over and over and over keep sacrificing animals, but Jesus offers himself once for all. The whole book of Hebrews, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, says Jesus is a better sacrifice because he, just, he doesn't have to come back over and over and give himself. He did it once for us. Numbers, we talked about it last week in our story of Nicodemus. Just as the serpent is raised in the wilderness, those who look in faith to God's provision for forgiveness are forgiven. That's Numbers. And Moses is writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in all those books, Moses is testifying about the one who will come and fulfill the Scriptures, but they don't believe their own Scripture. And then he says in verse 41, I do not accept praise from people, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God within you. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild people. He's just got the knife in and he's twisting it. You guys don't believe your own scripture. You don't believe your own witnesses. You don't believe I'm the son of God. You don't believe I should forgive this man and tell him to haul his mat around on the Sabbath. I've come in my father's name and you do not accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. 
How can you believe if you accept praise from one another and don't seek the praise that comes only from God? And then the last witness, verse 45, do not suppose that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses. They loved Moses, man. Moses gave him the Sabbath. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have placed your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe what Moses wrote, how will you believe my words? So they think now they've got reason to go after Jesus. They're going to try to kill him because he has violated the Sabbath. They're also going to kill him because they understand clearly that Jesus claimed to be God. See, again, I, I deal with people on a regular basis that are not believers. And I, I can't tell you the number of times I've had people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, yes, he did. And in, in John chapter 5, over and over and over, he claims to be equal to God and the one who can forgive and is greater than the Sabbath. Now, paragraph 50 is another Sabbath controversy. Paragraph 50, we're going to study it from the Matthew account. That's where those of you who are new tonight will understand the harmonies. Very, very helpful. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on a Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pick the heads of wheat and eat them. Again, you go back to your map, and you begin to understand that Jesus has left Jerusalem. The Passover is over. And now he's heading north, and that's good because most of the, the wheat crops, the grain crops, the food crops, to this day are, are raised in the north. God had commanded the Jewish people in the Old Testament, Leviticus, somewhere around chapter 20, I forget the exact verse, that when you are a farmer and you have a crop, you leave some of the crop alongside the road unharvested. You also... Don't take everything into the corners. You leave the corners. There's got to be some margin in your life. And the reason is all year long, Jewish pilgrims are walking up and down the land trying to get to and from Jerusalem, and they don't have a bunch of McDonald's. So if you were a disciple and if you were hungry, you'd reach over like we do for a granola bar. And you would pick a, a grain of wheat, and then you would rub the head of the wheat in your hands, and then you would blow away the chaff, and then you would eat it. Now... In doing those four things, you have violated four of the traditions of the Jews. The Jews had this big chunk of material called the Mishnah. Say Mishnah. We're going to cover that in our next session. And that's where these 1,500 regulations are. By picking the wheat, you're harvesting on the Sabbath. That's work. By rubbing it in your hands, you're threshing. That's work. By blowing away the chaff, that's winnowing. That's work. And by eating the grain, you're storing grain on the Sabbath. Isn't that great? Now, where does it say in the Old Testament you can't pick grain on the Sabbath and eat it? It doesn't say that. We just have one Sabbath law in the Old Testament. Jesus never breaks any of the laws in the Old Testament. But he often violates the traditions of the Pharisees. And so their question is a natural one. Next verse, Matthew 12, verse 2. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is against the law to do on the Sabbath. And again, when Jesus is accused of a Sabbath violation, he defends himself. First, haven't you read to them, haven't you read, he said to them, what David did when he and his companions were hungry, how he entered the house of God and they ate the sacred bread, which was against the law for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. So go back to 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. David is starving, his men are starving, there's times when needs, human needs, 
are greater than the Sabbath law. And so David does this same thing. They have needs. They eat the bread. Hey, you love David, right? Second, or have you not read in the law that the priests in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and they're not guilty? Now think about that. I, you know, I, I, I love my, my legalistic brethren. I used to live right next door to a guy who used to get on my case about mowing my lawn on Sunday. Well, first of all, Sunday is not the Sabbath. Sunday is the first day of the week. But he made a big deal of, oh, we've got to keep the Sabbath. You know, you can't mow your lawn on Sunday. We can't do this, and we can't do this, and we can't do that, we can't do that. But, you know, if he went to church on Sunday and his pastor decided not to preach that week, he'd be irate. And so Jesus is saying, hey, the Levites work on the Sabbath. What's up with that? There are some people who need to work on Sabbath. Third, verse 6, Matthew 12, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I want mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Fourth, for the Son of Man is what? Lord of the Sabbath. And the whole purpose of the Sabbath is in the Mark account. Go to the Mark account right in the middle, Mark 2.27. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. Isn't that great? So again, he is not on their good side. He is going to be condemned of a Sabbath violation. If you break the Sabbath, you've got to die. Okay? Pool of Bethesda, Greenfields, one more. We'll wrap up the Sabbath controversies. Next paragraph, paragraph 51. We'll teach this from the Matthew account. Verse 9 of Matthew 12, Then Jesus left that place and entered their synagogue. So we may be back up in Capernaum, not sure. This is where Jesus' hometown is. A man was there who had a withered hand, and they asked Jesus... Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, underline this, so that they could accuse him? See, the Pharisees had seen the man by the pool, but they didn't see the miracle. They just saw the outcome of him carrying his mat. So they really didn't have Jesus on the healing wrap. They just had the results of the healing. Now they want to watch him heal this man with a withered hand. And so they plant the guy in the synagogue. Normally they'd have nothing to do with the guy. I love the Luke account. Remember Luke was a doctor? Luke 6.6. 6. Now a man was there whose right hand was withered. Luke's the doctor. He's going to give us what's on the chart. Okay, in the Luke account 6.7 it says the experts in the law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. But before he says to them this, look back in the Matthew account verse 11. Matthew 12, 11, he said to them, would, would not any one of you, if he had one sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? So is it lawful to do good on, to do good on the Sabbath? And the answer is yes. Acts of mercy are okay to do on the Sabbath. In, if your sheep is in a ditch, if your ox is in a ditch, it's a merciful thing to break the Sabbath and get them out. The Mark account. Same passage, verse, chapter 3 and verse 4. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil to save a life or to destroy it? But they were silent. And then look at Mark 3 and verse 5. I love this verse. After looking around at them in anger, 
I think it's the same anger that Jesus had when he cleansed the temple. Grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. You know, Jesus is is allowed to do this because he can be angry but not sin. I can't do that. But he got angry at their hard hearts, at their, uh, at, and he grieved about it because of their sinful condition. And the man is healed. So verse 6, the Pharisees, and I'm in the, in the Mark account, Mark 3, 6. The Pharisees went out immediately and began plotting with the Herodians how they could assassinate him. The word assassinate is the, is the word in Greek to annihilate they wanted to annihilate him. In the, in the Luke account, it says, they were filled with mindless rage. Interesting that the Pharisees come together with the Herodians. You talk about strange bedfellows. The Pharisees were on the right. They were religiously on the right. They were politically on the right. And the Herodians, by their very name, liked the Romans. They were fans of Herod. They were on the left. And these two political enemies come together, and in the end of Jesus' life, we're going to see they're plotting to that time to destroy Jesus. And all this has to do with his violation of the Sabbath, which, again, Jesus never broke the Old Testament commandment. He just violated their tradition. Paragraph 52, And Jesus went away with his disciples to the sea, taking that to be the Sea of Galilee, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and watch this, from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, around Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude came to him when they heard about the things he had done. So all of the nations bordering Israel are getting word that Jesus is doing this stuff. And again, Jesus is doing a lot of this as he lives in Capernaum, which we saw last week is on the intersection as we head north between the Via Maris and the Via Ignatia, the Roman roads that connected the world. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples, Mark 3, 9, to have a small boat ready for him so the crowd would not press toward him. For he healed many so that all who were afflicted with diseases pressed toward him in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he sternly ordered them not to make him known. And then in the Luke account, chapter 6, actually either one in paragraph 53, it was during this time that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And he spent all night in prayer to God. When morning came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Up until now, it's been a part-time enterprise, and they've been called disciples. Now they're going to be called apostles. The Greek word apostolos literally means one who is sent out. And we're going to see in our next lesson that he sends them out with specific instructions. And then they're named. There's three sets of brothers here, Peter and his brother Andrew. James and John are brothers. Uh, and, uh, and then you have in verse 15, Tom, uh, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, who is also called Thaddeus in the Mark account, Simon, who is called the Zealot. You've got Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the Zealot, in the same group. Again, people that are united by Christ that would normally not be united at all. And then Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Judas Iscariot is always called a traitor whenever we find him in, in the scriptures. So the, the question is, what does it take to be a disciple? 
And it, it's that first answer to that question, what does it take to get well? What does it take to get well? Do you want to become well? Well, you know, that man at the pool gave the right answer. Sir, I have no one to get me into the water. But I've asked this question over and over of, of people that I've come across in my life. And do, you want to, do you want to have a relationship with Jesus? Well, some say, ah, you know, I, do I want to get well? I'd like to get well, but, you know, if I, if I really got well, I'd lose my place. I've, I've, got, I've got a great place here. And I've got friends. I'd really have to give up my friends. Ever hear somebody say that? I don't want to lose my friends. I don't want to lose my place. I get a lot of attention. I've been lame at this pool for 38 years, and people pray for me and love me and give me stuff, and I don't want to lose the attention if I really got right with God. I've had other people say, well, you know, I'd have to make some changes in my life if I got well. Some people think they have to change their life and then get well. No, Jesus makes you well. But there are going to be some life changes probably if, if he's really doing his job. Some people say, well, I want to get well, but someday... Not now. I've got this new business deal, or I'm building a new home, or I've got to wait to get my family in order, and then I'll do all this. So as we close this session, the question is, is there anything that keeps you from being well with Christ? Don't let it, because he is the Lord of the Sabbath and the Lord of the universe. Father, thank you for this man. We look forward to being with him in heaven and asking him what it was like to be at the pool for all those years and then all of a sudden be free to walk. We pray you teach us to walk as whole and complete individuals forgiven by your son Jesus who makes us well. We pray in his name. Amen.